The Iliad by Homer. Adapted and read to you by George Weedman with music and sound effects from Epidemic Sound. Book 3. The Trojan War's nine-year-long stalemate is about to be broken. After interpreting last night's dream as a prophetic sign, King Agamemnon has decided to lead his men into an unwise offensive. His best warriors have already left him, and the rest nearly staged a mutiny hours earlier. After the Achaeans are spotted approaching the city of Troy, the Trojans muster forth to meet them in the field. The Trojan men flew to their arms, on foot and mounted alike. The gates flung open and troops poured out, a great multitude trampling, eager to strike. The Illyrian men advanced forth with a loud clamor of cries, like when the wild fowl of cranes escaping winter up to high heaven flies, across the ocean to bring destruction onto Pygmean men, an offering of grim conflict brought down year and year again. But the Achaeans marched on in bitter silence, breathing fury and worry, stealing to stand in violence. As when the south winds blow onto a mountain, and over a dark mist they'll sheath, no friend to the shepherds but better than nightfall to a thief, so too did the march rise a cloud of dust beneath their feet. Closer and closer and closing to the front, they marched until the nobles could be told from grunts. Alexandros was first to extend his arm, an offering of challenge, welcoming the harm. Leopard on his shoulder, a bow on his back, squinting for who would come forth and attack. And it was King Menelaus of Sparta who urgently took him on. The very first Trojan to present himself was the very one he was after, the very man whose crime began this war nine years ago. Paris was divinely handsome, prancing proudly ahead of his line, a helmeted plume of horsehair nodding with every step, and Menelaus rejoiced. As a lion rejoices when ravenous hunger drives him to snap into the carcass of an antlered stag, carelessly devouring with haste under the pursuit of tough young hunters and their tracking dogs, so too was King Menelaus overtaken with famishment, hastily leaping from his chariot, fully armed, sprinting directly at Paris for revenge. And Paris quailed, shaking in his heart, paling in his cheeks, shrinking back into the lines of men, seizing with the same jolt one feels when coming suddenly upon a serpent in some mountain glen. Paris hurried deeply within the security of the ranks, until his brother Hector of the Shining Helm caught sight of his cowardice and reviled him with contemptuous words. Paris, he said. Look at you, brother. The only thing you're good at is looking good. You woman-crazed seducer, you liar. You should have never been born, much less never been wed. Better than having these Achaeans watch you run away and cower. Listen to them laughing. They're going to think we pick our champions out by their looks instead of by their courage or wit or skill. You went all the way out there into the deep sea and brought back not just the greatest beauty in the world wedded to that land of rugged spearmen. You brought back the shame and sorrow and grief of your father and your country. You brought back the delight of our enemies. 
keep moving. It is on you to confront that man and find out what kind of man whose luscious bedmates you take after. Your good looks and your dexterous fingers so skilled at the liar won't help you out here in the dusty battlefield, no! Maybe the Trojans are all weak-kneed cowards like you. Otherwise, we'd have pelted you to death with stones as soon as you came back with her. And to him, divinely handsome Alexandros blushed, and he replied, Your chastisement is just, brother. All of that lashing was fairly deserved. Your heart is as unyielding as a shipwright's sharpened axe. But still, my attractiveness is a gift from the goddess Aphrodite, and never are such gifts to be casted away. After all, we can't just pick and choose them at will, no. So, fine then. If you blame this entire war on me and him, just us two, and you want me to act like a brave warrior about it, then have all the other Trojans sit down and bid the Achaeans to match me against Menelaus, just the two of us, alone in single combat, a warrior's duel over the woman and her possessions, so we may prove whichever man is mightier, so that we Trojans may stay here in Troy and the Achaeans may go back home to Ach- So absorbed was Paris in his own speech that the Achaeans had chosen him as target for their archers and slingers. As the men ducked behind their shields covering their heads, Hector stood above the line, raising his palm and shouting at the Achaeans. Hold back, Argives! Cease fire! We propose a truce! Hear me! Hear from my mouth, you well-breathed Achaeans! Listen to the word of Alexandros! Hold your fire, men! Are they surrendering already? Stop! I want to hear him! Stop! You well-breathed Achaeans, listen to the word of Alexandros! Alexandros, through whom this quarrel has come about, Alexandros proposes a truce. He bids you lay down your arms and armor on the ground, while he and Menelaus fight a single combat over the woman and all her possessions, so we may prove whichever man is mightier. If we swear that these two duel alone over a covenant sacrifice, then perhaps peace can be enjoyed among the rest of our men. So he shouted, and both sides held back from throwing their arms, their clamor descending into a cautious silence, and then spoke up Menelaus of the great war cry. Hear me as well, for it is I who has been most grievously insulted. It's high time both of our sides finally settled this, Achaeans and Trojans. You've all suffered from my quarrel with him over the wrong he did to me. Let whichever of the two of us will die, die, and the rest of you may live. As for the covenant sacrifice, bring us two lambs, a white ram and a black ewe, for the gods of the earth and of the sun and my men will provide us with a third lamb for Zeus. Furthermore, I want your King Priam out here swearing with us too, swearing on the same covenant alongside his sons. The gods know that elders keep stronger promises than the youth. With his foresight and hindsight, he knows better what's at stake for both our sides. So he spoke and the Achaean and Trojan soldiers alike rejoiced, hoping for an end to the sorrowful war. 
The charioteers were the first to dismount and disarm, every piece of shining armor placed upon the dusty earth close together, with little space left between them. Hector sent two messengers up to the city to bring the lambs and bid forth King Priam, honoring his word to King Menelaus and Agamemnon, who were themselves dispatching the heralds back to the hollow ships to fetch a lamb in honor of Hector's instruction. Meanwhile, Iris, messenger of the gods, hurried over to white-armed Helen, taking the form of Hector's sister, Laodike, the most beautiful of all Priam's daughters. She found Helen in her room embroidering a grand web of purple linen, weaving into it the battles of Trojans and Achaeans, battles that Lord Ares had made them fight for her sake. Iris approached to her closely and addressed her. Come, come quickly, you must see what they are doing out there. For so many years of sorrowful war they were longing to kill each other, but now they sit in silence, leaning on their shields, throwing their spears into the dirt. Alexandros and Menelaus are to fight each other alone, over you. Whoever wins will be called your husband. With those words, the goddess filled Helen's heart with yearning, longing for her past life and her past husband, for her homeland and her parents, and for the sons and the little daughter she had left behind. Throwing on a cloak of shining linen, she rushed, hurrying with tears swelling, two of her women servants following behind, and they arrived soon at the ramparts, perched above the Scaean gates of Ilium. And there sat the older sages of Priam's advisors, wise, well-spoken men who were too old for fighting. Panthoos, Thymoetes, Lampos, and Clitios, and Antenor, all set high on the tower, chattering like cicadas who settle high into strong bowed trees, sawing themselves into utterance. As Helen approached, they spoke softly amongst themselves. What a terrible beauty she has, like a deathless goddess to look at, terrifying. That much beauty is bane more than blessing. Small wonder they're suffering a whole war over it. Still, let her go back to the ships. If she stays, she'll bring only grief to us and our children. And at that, King Priam called out, summoning Helen over. Come here, child, and sit down and relax, so that you may see your former husband, kinsmen, and friends. Do not fear. I find no blame with you. It is the gods I blame. It is they who have brought about this terrible war. Please tell me, who is that Achaean down there? Gigantic, majestic, looking like one of the kings. I do not fear you, dear father-in-law. I honor you, as I must. I followed your son here. I abandoned my bridegroom, my darling daughter, my friends all the good company I made throughout my girlhood. And now as I sit here, seeing that they came all this way back, I wish I had died instead. (sighs) Yes, that man you pointed out is Agamemnon, son of Atreus. A good king, a powerful spearman. Oh, how did I make such a whore of myself? How did this ever come to happen? The old man paid her sorrows no heed. He was marveling instead at the armies below. Look at how many people follow him. 
I used to march in war with the Phrygians, a great number of them assembled with horsemen, when Otrius and Migdon had us camped along the Sangarios River on campaign against the Amazon women, equals to men in war. But even then, we didn't have such numbers as these black-eyed Achaeans. And then seeing Odysseus, he pointed down at the man. Tell me, child, now about that one, too. A head shorter than Agamemnon, but broader across the shoulders. He just put his armor down, there, now striding through the ranks like a ram among sheep. Helen, born of Zeus, then answered him. That one is Laertes' son, resourceful Odysseus, who grew up in the rough country of Ithaca. He is shrewd at every manner of treachery and shiftiness, a man not to be trusted. And then wise Antenor of the king's sages, who was listening to the two, addressed them. This is true, my lady, very true. We hosted him here with Menelaus as an embassy, an embassy that was bargaining for your sake, you know. I fed them and entertained them, treated them well while studying their character and their strategies. Menelaus easily stood the taller of the two, but when seated down, Odysseus made an effort to appear taller. And when speaking out their bargaining terms to us, Menelaus certainly spoke majestically, but with brevity. He chose his few words well. Odysseus, in stark contrast, played us for fools. He would stand with his eyes fixed to the ground, feebly leaning on his scepter, stiff and straight. So thorough was his act that we thought of him as a mere simpleton, until he opened his mouth and spoke, and perfect words blew out like snowflakes in the winter wind. When he was talking, we could only stop and marvel, all from being taken aback by his disguise. After hearing Antenor's explanation, King Priam then pointed at Ajax, yet another Achaean. And who is that great godlike warrior, towering head and shoulders above the rest of the Argives? That, answered Helen, is a giant man, Ajax, bulwark of the Achaeans. And on his other side is Adamaneus, lord of the Cretans. Often did my former husband Menelaus host them as guests. I see many others whose names I remember, but there are two who should be there, but aren't. Castor, breaker of horses, and Pollux, the mighty boxer. They were my brothers. Either they never left Laconia, or or they refused to show themselves for the shame I have brought them. So she spoke, without knowing that both heroes had already been slain, and laid long under the cold black earth of their homeland Laconia, their heroic stars eternally gilded onto the night sky, to be remembered by the later generations forever. And so, throughout the city streets, two heralds led forth the oath offerings for the gods, two sheep and a bulbous goatskin of wine, along with a mixing bowl and golden wine cups. Standing beside the aged King Priam, the herald Idtheos spoke. You have been summoned by the princes of Trojans and Achaeans alike. Alexandros and Menelaos request that you swear to a solemn oath to honor the victor of a single combat between only those two that the man who lives will keep the woman in all her possessions, while the remainder are to swear to a covenant of peace and friendship, so that we Trojans may stay here in Troy, and the Achaeans may go back home to Achaia. 
The old man trembled as he heard, but nevertheless bid his horsemen to bring a chariot, and he mounted the elegant carriage, seated together with Antenor holding the reins, and together they drove the horses over to the wall, through the Scaean gates and into the plains. When they arrived and dismounted, they counted every step on their way between Trojans and Argives, and at once rose up Agamemnon, lord of men, together with Odysseus, who came bearing small knives. Both sides watched the princes lead lambs over to sacrifice, pouring wine in their mixing bowls and rinsing their hands, before the son of Atreus cut a lock of fleece from the lambs, passing it around and holding it above, and he prayed to the gods. O Zeus, first and greatest who all obey, upon Mount Ida's holy mountain sway, and Apollo with Helios the bright orb they roll, from east to west across the land they scroll, and to the infernal furies of Tartarian bane, thou'st deep in the earth who rule the slain, hear us and be witness. If great Menelaus falls into the dirt, then back home we'll go, accepting this hurt. And if my brother forces Paris to bleed, then his wealth and wife is ours by decree. But if they lie and Troy does not yield, then I'll wage war and let Ares decide the field. And he dragged the pitiless bronze across the lambs' throats, who fell dying, gasping into the dirt. The princes poured wine from the mixing bowl into their golden cups, and the soldiers on both sides prayed out loud their own plea to the immortal gods, that the one surviving warrior would be their own champion. Hear us, gods! May the first blood that parches the thirsty ground be shed in likeness to the wine poured down. May all his wives serve the other man's lust after his brains spill into the dust. So they spoke, and Zeus was watching, and he listened, but he bitterly refused their pleas. And then the Dardanian king Priam stood up and addressed them. Now hear me, Trojans, and you well-grieved Achaeans. I will go back up to Ilion now. I dare not watch this fight with my own eyes. Zeus and the gods already know whether or not my son will live. And he put the lambs in his splendid chariot, climbing aboard with Antenor and drew the reins tight, the two setting back off to Ilion together. Hector and Odysseus measured out a circle onto the ground and took lots, putting them in a bronze helmet and shaking it to decide which of the two would be the first to take aim and throw a bronze-tipped javelin at the other. And as they shook, the soldiers could still be heard, still praying, Whoever involved us in this vile debate, give that creator of war over to fate. By his ghost eternal, let this war cease, and finally our two nations join in peace. And Hector of the Shining Helm drew, his face turned away, but when he felt what it was with his hands, his spirit raced. A pebble, sized up to be what had been decided to be the lot of Alexandros. And forward stepped Paris, as the other soldiers watched him clad himself in dazzling armor. First came Cobalt Grieve circling his thighs around, and then a heavy bronze corslet with silver buckles bound, refitted from his brother Lycaon, stars and flowers adorned, and a silver-studded sword in a radiant baldric he worn. Then came his shield, large and sturdy over the arm it spread, and then his polished helm, horsehair nodding above his head, bending down to 
the ground a javelin he takes, and in his hand that spear he shakes. His spear struck the perfect circle of Menelaus's shield, the spearhead bending backwards against the strong bronze. When Menelaus readied his arm in turn, saying in an instant his prayer to Zeus, Father Zeus, punish this man's lawless lust, send pompous Paris grasping into the dust, avenge his breach of our hospitable laws, so all will know my righteous cause. And the heavy spear he threw tore clean into Paris's glittering shield, running all the way out the other side, smashing his corslet, tearing into his tunic. But Paris was leaning to the left, barely feeling any pain at all, and narrowly avoiding the darkness of death. The two warriors' boots and strikes were throwing up dust as Atreus' son Menelaus drew his sword and continued to thrash at Alexandros, aiming for the horn where the horsehair plume connects to the bowl of the helmet. And his sword shattered into four pieces, sliding out from his hands with the blow, and up he grimaced at the heavens and he shouted, Zeus, you despiteful demon! You robbed me of my spear and now my sword, but I will not let you rob me of my revenge! And Menelaus sprang forth, grabbing with his hands what his sword could not, dragging Paris by the helmet's proud plume of nodding horsehair, the prince's heavily armored thrashing feet kicking up even more dust as he strained for steady footing, choking on the chin strap of the dragging helmet, Menelaus hauling him into the circle's edge towards the murderous Achaeans, throwing Alexandros into their waiting arms. But what flew from his strong arms was only Paris's helmet. The leather chin strap made from the hide of a slaughtered bull had snapped, and Menelaus's feet stumbled from his own overestimated force, his furious passion kicking up even more dust. He turned his head back into the cloud at where Alexandros had stood, Menelaus grasping and striking at whatever he could, but his gauntleted knuckles hit only the darting dust. For Paris's own sake, for all the favor that his preening pride had grown accustomed to, the gods had whisked him away. Aphrodite was the one who had decisively favored him in every turn that duel had taken, and she whisked him away against all reason back to his perfumed bedchamber. So set was his mind on experiencing one final act of love with his terrifyingly beautiful Helen. Aphrodite herself appeared in the polished stone halls of the Illyrian palaces, rushing through the hallways and up to the ramparts to fetch Helen, taking the form of an old lady who used to dress her wool back in Laconia. The goddess spoke to her in the whispered words of an old crone. Come, come now. Alexandros is waiting for you. He's lying in his bedchamber and he looks radiant. His skin glistens with oil. He's wearing his finest robes. You would think he just came back from a dance instead of the dust and sweat of combat. So she spoke, and the heart in Helen's bosom quickened. But upon recognizing the goddess's impossible form, taking the shape of one of her most beloved maidens from her long-lost home, Helen grew angry, and she spoke carefully. My maddening goddess, why do you beguile me now? Will your lust send me even further away to some other man this time? Will I end up in Phrygia or Maeonia next? Have you taken a liking to some mortal man there, too? I am to go back with Menelaus. I just saw him vanquish Paris. So I think you are here to deceive me. 
go join Alexandros yourself. Worry after him until he makes you his wife for some slave girl of his. I should be going out through the gates if I am to save all the other Trojans from even more grief. I have all of their sorrows weighing on my heart. Do not provoke me, bold girl. In my immortal rage, I could strike you down right now. I hate you as much as I adore you. You cannot fathom the troubled fates I could spin for someone in your position. Sowing hatred as you do from both of these powerful nations. So she spoke, and Helen grew terrified at the possibilities. She wrapped her shining mantle about herself and followed the goddess in silence. None of the other women saw where she was going or who she was with. And once they arrived at Paris's rich, elegant abode, the other handmaidens turned away to busy themselves with some task, while Aphrodite fetched Helen a chair. She sat down, averted her eyes, and reproached him. So you're back from your honorable duel, to find out who was the better man of the two of you? Maybe I might have just been wishing that he had slain you then, but I see that you have been given a second opportunity to challenge him again. Go on, then. Go do so. But I'd truly advise you don't. I don't think you'll survive the second time. No more, my dear. Please lash me with no more chastisement. My spirit and my courage cannot take any more. True, Menelaus won our fight for today, but only because he had Athena on his side. But next time I will be the victor, for I have gods on my side too. Aphrodite, for one, as we both know so very well. Come now, let us lie down together and make love. Never before has my longing for you so enamored and overwhelmed me, not even when I swept you away from those raggedy cliffs of Laconia, not even when we first sat together on the couch of love on the island of Crenea, not even then have I loved you as much as I love you now. So he spoke and led the way to their elegant bedchamber, with its bed inlaid with golden rings. And as those rings shook, Atreus's son Menelaus stalked like a hungry beast through the lines of the Trojans, trying to find where Alexandros the godlike was hidden, but none of the Trojan men nor their Lycaean allies could find him. And Agamemnon, king of men, roared aloud to the heralds. Hear me, Trojans, Dardanians, and Lycaeans! The victory has clearly gone to Menelaus. You shall now give back Helen and all her wealth. Honor the terms of our agreement, the covenant and the sacrifice that so many of you witnessed. Pay us what is proper, and we shall go home. Thank you for listening to Book 3 of the Iliad, where all the characters have finally been introduced, we finally get our first glimpse at what a Homeric action scene looks like, and we also finally have the first example of what I want to point out as a glaring historical inaccuracy. Homer doesn't seem to know how chariots worked. In the very beginning of Book 3, Menelaus jumps out of the safety and speed of his chariot to sprint at the enemy lines on foot. It's a move that surely contradicts any ancient chariot warfare you've seen in movies or video games and such, but it also contradicts the surviving artifacts depicting chariots from the Bronze Age that Homer's people never would have seen with their own eyes. 
In the Dark Age to Iron Age transition, they weren't around as much. Horses are expensive animals to maintain no matter the time period, and Homer was living in a less glorious time period, after all. Chariots were used as a weapons platform. Charioteers would shoot a bow or do a jousting-style skewering maneuver with the speed of a horse-powered spear, but in the Iliad, chariots are treated more like taxis. The warriors hop on and off at a safe distance, and then continue to fill the rest of the gap on foot. Shortly afterwards, though, Homer mentions a metaphor about lions, and there actually were lions in ancient Greece, he's right about that one. Though they were very, very rare and on their way out on the European mainland, they were still a danger in the Anatolian, Asiatic part of the ancient Greek world that Homer was supposedly from. But in the Bronze Mycenaean Age, anatomically correct lions were featured prominently in Mycenaean art, as if the artist had been seeing real lions to use as models. The Lion's Gate at the city of Mycenae was actually shown in the beginning of this series, although you might have missed it if you didn't already know what they were supposed to be. The heads on the Lion's Gate had been chiseled off by some treasure hunter long, long ago. This is also where we start hearing the name Alexandros being used as a pseudonym for Paris. Homer uses Alexandros when he needs more syllables to fill out the rhythm, and Paris when he needs less. And you can still hear this in the English translations, too. Notice how when he's getting fiercely yelled at, or if he's in the heat of some fast action, he's called Paris. But when the narrator is taking time to describe the finer details of a scene, or a character is making a more long-winded formal speech, he is called Alexandros. By the way, there's no connection between the Paris here and the French city of Paris either. That is pure coincidence. The French capital was named after the Gaelic tribe that lived there in the 3rd and 4th centuries AD, called the Parisi. So, once again, to recap, Paris and Alexandros are the same person, Ilium, Ilios, and Troy are the same place, Trojans, Dardanians, and Lycaeans are all the same military faction, and they're up against the Achaeans, the Argives, or the Danaeans, which are also all the same faction. I hope it's not too confusing. Oh, and also, Laconia is the regional province that the city-state of Sparta was in, which means the Iliad is the earliest place where we have a description of a phrase we still use today, laconic, referring to the Spartans' intimidating use of brevity. Come and take them, or tonight we dine in Hades, or confidently responding to the enemy's emissary with just the one word of if, are all famous examples of laconic speech. And at least 300 years before those phrases were ever written down into recorded history, we have this little aside in Book 3 about Menelaus of Sparta carefully choosing his few words, at least when he's presenting his official matters at court. His lines on the battlefield are about as poetically long-winded as any other Homeric character. And for one last bit of weird history, what is with that bit in the beginning about the clamor of cranes bringing down a grim conflict of destruction to Pygmean men year after year again? That is where the etymology of the word pygmy comes from. It's used in Greek mythology to describe a type of character pretty darn similar to what fantasy authors nowadays will name after the Germanic dwarves instead. In Greek mythology, the story goes that every year when cranes and other water birds migrate southwards, they would have to battle the pygmies for territory in the land beyond the known edges of ancient Greece's geographical knowledge. 
The pygmies were imagined to be living in India and the parts of Africa south of where they were placing the Ethiopians, who were south of the Egyptians. So, thousands of years later, when European explorers began more thoroughly charting southern Africa, the mythological name got labeled onto the smaller tribal people they came across. But to move on to a more well-known topic, Book 3 is where we get to directly encounter some of the sexism of the ancient Greek world, as represented by the dilemmas facing Helen, and how Homer's version of Helen at least paints the character with a bit more agency than some of the other myth-makers. But as much as I love Homer, it's hard to sugarcoat this stuff from any angle you take. In most of the Iliad, women are going to be as literally, mathematically, objectively objectified as much as possible. Their value as prizes will be directly measured in gold and silver or even livestock animals. For all the arguing we heard over Chryseus and Briseis in the first two books, they will never have a word of their own to say until some scant lines in the very, very end. However, they stand in quite stark contrast to the more godlike character of Helen, who does have a degree of divinity. She is directly descended from Zeus. This reminds me of a similar double standard going on in Hesiod's Theogony, which expresses a complete love and respect for the characters of the immortal Greek goddesses just before a whole lot of revoltingly sexist lines about the real living mortal women sharing Hesiod's world alongside him. Unlike Homer's Chryseis and Briseis, Homer's Helen is a more complete character whose inner dialogues are fully respectfully shown in Book 3, where it's alluded that she left her former husband and sailed away with her new one willingly, which defies at least a few artifacts of pottery art showing Paris's seduction and elopement as a much more violent abduction. In most English translations of the Iliad, Helen will use the word slave to describe something she specifies that she is not, but could easily become. She's not exactly being held captive in a prison cell or anything, but she is under enormous social pressure from all the local Trojans for triggering this war that is getting their husbands and sons killed. Meanwhile, the Achaeans are also eager to give up fighting for so long over someone else's marriage dispute. Her spoken dialogue expresses ample regret for what she has done, and the more private dialogue represented by her conversation with Aphrodite shows her going back and forth over just how willingly she wants to commit to it now that the crisis has worsened. But wait, it gets worse! The cultural backstory that Homer's audience would have known, and the answer to her own question of, oh, how did I make such a whore out of myself, to use more polite language than the Lattimore translation, has to do with Helen and Paris both having God-given attractiveness. So, nine years earlier, in the previous installment of the Trojan Cycle that wasn't written by Homer and didn't survive the test of time, all the trouble of the Trojan War begins with the ever-present Western mythological motif of ambitious women with fruit screwing everything up for the men ever since. The beginnings of the Trojan War begin with the Greek goddesses of Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite staging a beauty contest amongst themselves over a golden apple representing a whole can of even more symbology I don't want to accidentally write an extra hour about. The divinities decide that a random mortal like Paris would make a good neutral third party to be the judge. Hera offered him political power if he picked her, promising that he'd become king of all Europe and Asia. Athena promised him mastery over art and war. 
Aphrodite promised him that the most beautiful woman in the world would fall in love with him, and Paris, being the irresponsibly confident strapping young lad in his vivacious youthful years, picks Aphrodite, who gives him a magic belt that works something like a love potion, a magical trinket that makes anyone fall over him. Under that kind of trickery, you can't exactly consider Helen's decision to be all her own, and Homer doesn't offer his own alternate universe version of that traditional backstory either. I tried, as so many others have, to make their chemistry at least a little bit more interesting and exciting. But wait, it gets even more worse! The ancient Greeks considered a person's physical beauty, whether they be male or female, to be a literal direct gift from the gods themselves. The logic being that particularly attractive people must also be particularly closer to and particularly favored by the divinities upstairs. The best example of this mythology getting employed into real legal history is the Athenian court case in 350 BC over a particularly famous courtesan named Phryne who was arrested and put on trial for the crime of blasphemy. But after bearing her beautiful body to the jury, they declared her innocent under the logic that nobody's body with so much beauty could commit a crime of blasphemy. I do want to believe that this legal decision would have been at least a bit controversial for at least a bit of the Athenians at the time, because a hundred years earlier, around about 450 BC in Athens, Socrates invents modern philosophy by apparently being one of the first ancient Greeks to popularize the thought that someone can simultaneously be ugly and also a good person at the same time. Before Socrates, the ancient Greek world was directly linking beauty to moral goodness. Like Phryne, Socrates was also put on trial for blasphemy, but unlike Phryne, he wasn't known for having good enough looks to get him out of trouble. But this kind of reasoning explains why Helen's level of beauty steers so far from convention that at her point, it's more of a curse than a blessing. Someone getting that much attention from the gods is never left well enough alone. It's a spectrum. You don't want to be on either extremes of the opposite ends, because opposite of Helen is a character like Thersites from Book 2. Hopefully, this fleshes out a bit more of the historical context behind the glaring ableism with which Homer described Thersites, a whole paragraph going into all the details of just how ugly and lame and deformed he is, before Thersites himself then has a few lines of entirely valid criticisms, lines that are important to providing irony and tragedy to the plot, and also to rationalizing why most of the soldiers are so fed up with fighting this war and why they're on the verge of leaving at that particular moment of the story. And as you'll remember, in the real life of the Dark Age to Iron Age transition that Homer was writing in, there was enough time that had passed between his audience and the Bronze Age for some valid criticisms of totalitarian authority to start becoming normalized, butterflying into the oligarchical governments and eventually democratic ones. A popular consensus nowadays views that Homer's vivid description of Thersites' ugliness was a literary device used to voice opinions of gratifying anti-authoritarianism in a way that would still personally distance the poet from the character and protect them from anger and censorship. This is why I said in the last book that Thersites was a character maligned in Homer's time, but who would have his glory later on in history, getting more and more vindicated as time would go on. Alexander the Great supposedly said that he'd rather be remembered as a Thersites than not be remembered at all. 
Shakespeare depicted the character with appreciation in his retelling of the Trojan tragedies. Thersites shows up in the pamphlets and letters of Karl Marx as a proto-communist example of the good moral values of expressing valid criticism. In modern medicine, the term Thersites complex is used as a type of body dysmorphia to refer to patients who are extremely anxious about a minimal physical issue that's not nearly as big a deal as they think it is. The artifact I've associated with Book 3 here is a plaster woman's head from Mycenaean Greece, dated to 1300s or 1200s BC, which is pretty close to when a Trojan War would have happened. The Mycenaeans made it to look like a 3D version of the kind of women they painted on their wall frescoes, with huge outlines drawn around penetrating eyes, wavy crescent patterns lining the hair that evoke swirling ocean waves, and ghastly white skin, thought to represent the good virtues of staying inside and out of the sun, which might have gotten passed down to Homer when he uses the epithet of white-armed or pale-cheeked when describing noble women. This artifact was used as one of the inspirations for Helen's wedding makeup in the computer game Total War Troy, though not much is really known about who or what the plaster face is supposed to represent. Since it was found in a shrine complex, it's more likely to be a figure of the goddess than of a mere mortal woman's bridal makeup, but Helen is certainly a character who blurs the line between the two. In any case, the plaster face's unconventional design and unknowable true purpose evoke just how alien the setting is for one of the least alien stories of Western history. For how many times the Trojan War has been retold and remade and reinterpreted, the strangeness of its actual artifacts is a reminder that even in Homer's day, they were taking lofty creative liberties to tell a story about times long, long forgotten. Thanks again to Epidemic Sound for their library of music and sound effects. The musicians you've heard in this episode were Grant Newman, August Wilhelmson, and Howard Harper Barnes. And I'd also like to fully acknowledge and thanks all of my Patreon supporters who made this project possible, which include Joel Jacobson, son of Jacob, Seb Eater, devourer of beer, Tom Webster of the Many Words, Joe Bags, who holds many things, Russell Callender of Godlike Punctuality, Ask Joe Batune, the most harmonious one, Zach Schuster, teller of tales, Marty Crinlin, friend of all healers, Quiddle Sticks, he who loves all animals. J.P.U., the most mysterious of deities. A. Cody Shufelin, who dances every day. Occluded Chungus, voracious consumer of carrots. Graham White, baker of crackers. Irwin Unate, lover of the spiced meat. Jason McClung of the far-flung tongue. Jeffrey Paul, wise financier of funds. Pat Delaney, who is correct in all things. Michael Russell, fearsome at games of tennis. And finally, there was Emil Olberg of impeccable judgment. <laughs>